0: You are now rocking with a jazz hammer. All right, so recently I was recommended the philosophy podcast titled Philosophize This, which breaks down the works of different philosophers in ways that you could actually understand. So from what I understand, Up until the mid-1700s, there was this great debate over whether we as humans gain knowledge because of an innate sense of reason or rationalism, or if we gain knowledge from experience or empiricism. And then came Immanuel Kant, who revolutionized this whole debate by basically saying, why can't humans gain knowledge from both rationalism and empiricism? (laughs) Well, in a similar vein, pun intended, On this episode, I am going to dive deep into a similarly contested debate over the rock type in one spot on Mount St. Helena called the bear. You see, there are two factions here. Those who think that the bear falls in line with the rest of the rock in the area and is volcanic in origin, and those who see how different this rock looks and feels from the rest of the mountain and say that it is a quartzite. And right now, On this very episode, I will bring to you evidence for my revolutionary idea, which is that the bear is both volcanic rock and quartzite. Boom! (laughs) Hello, and welcome to The Rock Behind the Climb. I am your host, the jazz hammer, Quintadzo. In this episode, we are going to discuss the epic geology behind the notorious sport climbing on Mount St. Helena, just north of the bay area the geology is confusing and at times scary but in the teachings of edmund burke i think you will find a subliminal delight in grappling with the crazy formations that this mountain has to offer but of course i'll do my best to break it down as best i can and resist talking about philosophy or comparing myself to Immanuel kant anymore mount saint helena as opposed to Mount St. Helens in Oregon, is a peak just north of Napa and the greater San Francisco Bay Area and home to a lot of great sport climbing and hiking trails. When I first started pouring through the guidebooks on places to climb in the Bay Area, Mount St. Helena really stood out as being one of the best in terms of its bolted sport climbs, even though from my place in Santa Cruz It is almost just as far to get to Mount St. Helena as it is to get to the Sierras. Zooming in a bit, Mount St. Helena is located right on the northern end of Napa Valley, California, which is better known as wine country for having notorious world-renowned vineyards. In fact, as you hike up Mount St. Helena to the various climbing spots, you can get a good view of the luscious green and very flat Napa Valley chock full of vineyards squeezed in between two moderate mountain ranges. The formation of Mount St. Helena is very closely related to the formation of the Napa Valley, which I will get into in a little bit. On the mountain itself, there are a number of different rock outcroppings starting about midway up the mountain that make up the different climbing areas. In fact, The first testimonial I heard before going out to Mount St. Helena was from my friend who complained about how much hiking you have to do before getting up to any of the climbing spots. The first one you get to is called The Bubble, which is about a 30-minute hike from the parking lot, and it's about where most people set up for the day. However, I was able to venture out to three different climbing spots, the aforementioned Bubble the satellite rocks, and the bear, each with a unique geologic aspect that together, I think, do a good job of outlining what is going on with the rock out there. So on this episode, I'm going to do a lot of flipping back and forth between the geology and the rock climbing because the geology of each area that I talk about builds on the geology of the last one. Okay, lastly, before getting into it, I want to take a sec to acknowledge geologist David Howell. He helped me immensely in understanding the geology of the region and how Mount St. Helena played into it. David Howell is a retired Stanford professor and scientist for the USGS who has done a ton of geologic research in the Napa area. He has a particular affinity for wine and now does wine and geology tours. When I started researching for this episode, I saw his name continue to pop up in publications, so I figured I would email him through the Geology and Wine Tours website and see what happened. And miraculously, he answered, and we had a very nice email correspondence. While his voice won't be featured on this episode, his knowledge certainly will be, so thank you, David. All right, let's get into it. So, right off the bat, I want to dispel one rumor. Mount St. Helena is not an extinct volcano. There were no lava or ash vents found anywhere on the mountain. However, that being said, all of the outcropping rocks you find on the mountain are volcanic in origin. So, if the mountain itself isn't a volcano, then how did those rocks get there? Well, the short answer is that there were a number of nearby volcanoes that erupted ash and lava that flowed and hardened into the area that is now Mount St. Helena. But how did those volcanoes get there? That answer is not as simple, but let's talk about it because it's pretty cool. So frequent listeners of the podcast know that a lot of my talk about geology Starts the same way, with the subduction of the Farallon Plate, which was this giant tectonic plate sandwiched between the Pacific Plate and North America. The reason I say was, is because this tectonic plate does not exist in full anymore. Because, as a whole, this plate slid underneath the North America Plate through a process called subduction so to make it clear this tectonic plate was traveling west and when it got to north america it basically slid underneath into the ether that geologists call the earth's mantle however the farallon was not exactly traveling perfectly due east to subduct underneath the relatively stationary north american plate this is because on its backside You had the Pacific Plate, which is generally moving northwards, traveling parallel to the North American Plate. This caused the Farallon Plate to actually subduct more northeast, making the Farallon completely submerge underneath Southern California first, before completely subducting under Northern California. This oblique movement created a point where the three plates... The Pacific, the North American, and Farallon all met in Southern California. As time went on, the Farallon kept subducting and the North American plate kept moving northward. This point where all three plates meet also migrated northward. The best way I could come up with to visualize this phenomenon is think about zippering up a jacket. One side of the jacket is the North American plate. One side is the Pacific. And your shirt underneath is the Farallon plate. And the zipper, that's the triple junction where all the plates meet now this analogy isn't great because in reality the pacific plate is moving so one of your jacket flaps would have to be grinding up against the zipper part and your shirt underneath would have to be moving as well but hopefully you get the visual of the triple junction in case none of this made any sense though i linked a youtube video in the episode notes that shows an animation of this process of all three plates meeting what is important though is that there is this triple junction point. To the south, you have a transform plate boundary where the Pacific plate is grinding up against the North American plate on a fault plane known as the San Andreas Fault. To the north, you have a subduction plate boundary where the Farallon is at the end of its subduction. Altogether, they have weird complex geologic effects on the topography. One such weird effect is that this triple junction left a trail of volcanoes in its wake. On the Pinnacles National Park episode, we talked about one such volcano, which erupted around 22 million years ago. However, it was just around 8 million years ago when the triple junction caused volcanoes around Napa and the North Bay to erupt and create the volcanic rock at Mount St. Helena. But the cool thing is that it was a very similar process that formed the rocks at Mount St. Helena as Pinnacles National Park. The type of rock that formed from these volcanic eruptions is derived from volcanic ash melting together and cooling, lava flows cooling, or rock that forms as a conglomeration of chunks ejected and bound together by lava or ash. Actually, a lot of the time, you see a mixture of all three of these rock types. In more technical terms, though, the rock that is formed from volcanic ash is called a tuff. Rock formed from the lava flows is either andesite or rhyolite, depending on the chemical makeup. And the rock formed as a conglomeration of sorts is called a volcanic breccia. Now, I hear that there is some breccia around, but in my experience, most of the rock was andesite, rhyolite, or tuff, meaning that it was either lava or ash. And with these rocks, I think the inherent feature of the rock that is most relevant to climbing are the pockets created by escaping gas. This feature, which geologists refer to as vesicular volcanic rock, is most notably found in the areas with tuff, or volcanic ash deposits. This is because when the ash is ejected out of the volcano, there is a lot of gas vapors that come out of the volcano at the same time. Hence, why it comes out as floating ash and not lava. So, when the ash settles and melts together, there's a high chance that there's going to be trapped gas between the particles that, when it escapes, will leave large gaps in the rock, creating pockets. A great example of this vesicular, welded tuff is at the most popular area on Mount St. Helena, appropriately named the Bubble. There are huge pockets and caves, formed by this phenomenon on this outcrop that make for some awesome juggy climbs and interesting overhangs in the case of the larger cave-sized pockets. The classic 510-rated climbs here called the ladder and the old ladder were my favorites. Alright, so we have this area that is covered by volcanic rocks, either formed by lava or volcanic ash, But how did this volcanic field actually become a prominent peak? Well, it actually has a lot to do with the formation of the Napa Valley itself. And I promise that all of this has to do with the hotly contested debate over what type of rock is featured at the bear. But, you know, bear with me for a sec. So let's get back to that whole triple junction zipper thing where the Farallon plate is subducting while the Pacific plate is migrating north up against the North American plate. Another effect of that process on the topography was that this plate movement created compression, thrusting, and folding in the North American plate. Now, all the mechanics of what are actually going on here, are pretty complicated. However, a simple way of thinking about it would be if you held a piece of paper in two hands and slowly moved your hands together, making the piece of paper bend upwards in areas and downwards in other areas. This is kind of what happened in the Napa region, where the Napa Valley is the trough of that piece of paper. One of the two mountain ranges that bound the valley, called the Mayakama's Range, which includes Mount St. Helena, is like the peak of that piece of paper. The other mountain range, on the eastern side of Napa, was created a little differently, but caused by the same phenomenon of the three plates coming together. So, aside from creating the Mayakama's Mountain Range and the Mount St. Helena Peak, The folding and compression also affected the volcanic rocks on Mount St. Helena by creating joint systems. I talked a lot about what a joint system is and means on my episode titled The Sierra Nevada Part 2, but essentially a joint system is a series of cracks in rocks that are all oriented in the same direction. On Mount St. Helena, There is a particular joint system created by the compression of the plates that dips at an angle of about 70 to 80 degrees towards the west, roughly. These cracks happen to nearly line up with the face of the climbs on the hailstone rock in the satellite rocks area, but the joint planes are off the rock face by just enough to provide nice edges and crimps on the face. The climb that is known as the Hailstone Arete, which was one of my favorite climbs overall, exemplifies this well. It is a moderate 5'9 rated sport climb near the peak of the mountain that follows the sharp arete that overlooks the mountain below. On this climb, you end up having to find and use these lips created by the planar jointing created by the tectonic compression that I talked about earlier. This same joint plane carries across multiple outcrops. Hiking down from the Hailstone Rock, I noticed this same set of steeply dipping joints all faced the same way in the areas known as the Fin, the Wednesday Wall, and all the way down to the huge rock outcrop known as the Bear. The Bear, as the name suggests, is an expansive rock face on the side of Mount St. Helena that is almost 150 feet tall and contains a ton of interesting sport climbs in the 5'10 to 5'11 rated range. The face of the bear where people climb looks east towards the main hiking trail that extends right past it. From the approach, the rock looks no different than any other outcropping in the park. However, as you get closer, you'll notice that the bottom 40 or 50 feet on its south side is a shiny yellowish looking sheer face that is unlike any rock in the rest of the park. All of the rock around this one face is the same lava-turned rhyolite or andesite rock found around the rest of the mountain, aside from the fact that the rock is also charred from a recent forest fire in 2017. However... This one face looks and feels different. For one, the yellowish face of the bear is a lot harder than the rhyolite. The sharp edges and crimps on this face feel much stronger than the pockets and tectonically jointed shelves that I talked about earlier. Not that any of the rock that I climbed on was too poor in quality, but even the thinnest of holds on the face of the bear felt confident to pull on. While there are still pockets on this rock which range between finger holds to hand-sized pockets, they have an incredibly curious quality to them, which is that many of these pockets contain clear, jagged crystals that range from the size of a grain of sand to the size of an eraser on the end of a pencil. Their texture is quite sharp, and I definitely cut my finger on these sharp, clear crystals quite a few times. The feel and look of this particular rock face on the bare outcrop is reminiscent of rock that I climbed on in Ibex, Utah, which was pure quartzite. In a similar way, I just remember the thinnest of edges and pulls feeling incredibly safe with this almost bulletproof seeming rock. This is why in his guidebook, Bay Area Rock, Jim Thornburg calls this rock a quartzite. Now, it does not take a lot of examination and knowledge to recognize that the face of the rock is almost entirely purely made of quartz, and that those crystals found in some of the pockets are very large quartz crystals. However, calling the entire outcrop quartzite doesn't quite sit right with me. I mean, technically most geologists refer to quartzites as metamorphosed sandstones that are almost purely made of quartz grains that have been fused together through metamorphism. However, the word quartzite does have some ambiguity in its meaning, and we could reasonably broaden the definition of the word quartzite to just any rock that is composed of nearly 100% quartz. Either way, though, it is clear that when you take a step back and look at the outcrop as a whole, that a majority of the thing is the volcanic rhyolite found everywhere else. In fact, climbs like Mark's Moderate, which features a chimney that cups deep into the rock, past the quartzitic face, into the rhyolite, or some of the climbs on the eastern side of the outcrop, feature very little of this quartz. I think for that reason, the Super Topo Bay Area Top Ropes Guide lists this area as crystallized volcanic ash so the question is what is really going on here is it quartzite or is it volcanic rhyolite well like i hinted in the intro i'm going to suggest to you that it can be both so of course like all the other rocks on this mountain the bear was a similar volcanic lava that cooled and hardened over time also similar to the hailstone rock that i talked about earlier This rock was also jointed by tectonics, creating a series of cracks that all angled the same direction. However, at the bear, some of these cracks were filled in by precipitated quartz minerals. The bear features these tectonic joints oriented in the same plane as the face of the rock, which creates this surface of quartzitic rock. If you hike around the bear for a little bit, you can see some of these veins as stripes that are about a foot wide that race across the rock in the same orientation as the quartzitic face. For one sec, though, let's talk about how these veins actually form and what I mean when I say precipitated quartz minerals. Now, this can happen in a number of different ways, but based on the setting and the fact that the rock here was created by the subduction of an oceanic plate, I figure that these veins are hydrothermal veins, meaning that they are created by ocean water that has come into contact with the Earth's mantle, creating this mineral solution that bubbles up into the Earth's crust. This water vapor that contains other dissolved minerals deposits these minerals in the cracks of the rock that it travels through to reach the surface of the Earth. These minerals then cool in the cracks to create the veins. I think it would be a lot to talk about the properties of quartz and what makes it so much harder than other rock, but basically the reason why the edges feel so secure is because quartz is notoriously weather resistant and harder than most other minerals. Now in most cases, there are just quartz minerals that get deposited in the cracks for these veins. However, most notably, Quartz veins are where gold and silver are commonly mined, because gold and silver minerals can be a part of that water vapor that gets boiled to the surface. Actually, for this reason, back in like the 1880s, the Silverado mine opened up on Mount St. Helena to try to mine these quartz veins for gold. Luckily, they didn't find anything, and the whole operation was abandoned long ago. However, in the wake of their destruction, they left the Silverado Mine rock climbing area, which I have not explored yet. In my opinion, the price of gold is, what, like two grand an ounce? But an awesome rock climbing crag filled literally with all kinds of surprises? Priceless. Anyway, that's about all I have on the geology of this mountain. To recap, the rocks here came from a nearby volcano and are composed of lava and ash. This volcanism is the result of three tectonic plates coming together and not only creating volcanoes, but also folding and thrusting the land into a series of mountain ranges. This folding and thrusting created a repeating joint set that in places got later infilled by hydrothermal quartz veins. One such vein is exposed on the face of the bare rock, creating an interesting duality of quartzitic rock on the outside of volcanic rock. In this way, the rock is both quartzite and volcanic rhyolite. Naive miners during the 1800s saw this as an opportunity to mine gold from these veins, but thankfully they did not succeed because it gives all of us the opportunity to enjoy it for years to come. Thank you all so much for listening. A big thank you goes out to geologist David Howell for corresponding with me on this episode and everyone that climbed with me out there. As always, feel free to reach out to me with any comments, questions, or critiques through any of the provided avenues in the episode description. I do recognize that I've been pretty inconsistent lately with making episodes. Post-pandemic life has been a little crazy for me, and I haven't had a lot of time to do these episodes. Either way, the podcast isn't going away, and I wholeheartedly appreciate your interest. So, with that, I'll close this episode the same way that they do sometimes on the podcast Philosophize This. Thank you for wanting to know more today than you did yesterday. Jazzhammer, out.